This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Carrick. Whether you're a fan of tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons or video game console RPGs like Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest, you're probably familiar with what you might call the progression of travel. Admittedly, it's less defined in Dungeons & Dragons, and it's left out of a lot of Western RPGs and PC games, but the general sense is always sort of there. You start off schlepping around on foot. Of course, there's some limitations to where your feet can take you. You usually can't cross mountains on foot, or the ocean, or even rivers. So you're limited to the landmass you were born on. You know what? Let's take a specific example. Let's take the first ever game in the Final Fantasy franchise. That's Final Fantasy the first. It's not even Final Fantasy one, because no one thought there would be a second one. No one thought they would have a job after Final Fantasy. Least of all, the series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi. What happened was this. Back in 1983, while the video game industry was collapsing in the United States, the fledgling industry was really starting to boom in Japan. And a young graduate of Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan was unhappy. Masafumi Miyamoto had been pressured into working for his father's company, Denyusha Electric. The firm primarily constructed electrical lines and infrastructure. Miyamoto had wanted to go into women's clothing design, but his father hadn't given him much choice. As a compromise, Miyamoto was allowed to form a new division for PC software design at Denyusha Electric. The division was called Square, and it primarily developed computer games. While it wasn't what Miyamoto wanted to do with himself, he still proved somewhat visionary. At the time, most computer software was developed by single programmers who did all of the work themselves. But games were becoming more complicated, and Miyamoto saw the potential value of teamwork and specialization. Instead of one person doing everything, a video game could be developed by a team of programmers, designers, artists, and writers. To realize his vision for video game design, Miyamoto's Square, still a division of Denyusha Electric, opened up computer cafes in Yokohama. Whenever a patron showed a particular talent, they were recruited by Square. And that is how two other unhappy young men ended up working for Square. In 1983, college buddies and engineering students Hironobu Sakaguchi and Hiromichi Tanaka dropped out of Yokohama National University. The pair were discovered by Square and offered minor positions there. By 1986, Miyamoto's approach to PC game design had been successful enough that he was able to take Square out from under his father's shadow. Square Company Limited became a separate company and it attached itself to the video gaming juggernaut Nintendo as a third-party developer of home console games for the Nintendo Famicom and the Nintendo Entertainment System. Sakaguchi and Tanaka were both promoted. Sakaguchi became a planning director and worked on several Nintendo titles that unfortunately did not prove to be particularly popular or successful. Tanaka became a designer and producer. Unfortunately, Square's offerings were lackluster. The few titles they had developed failed to catch on, even though their driving game, Rad Racer, was kind of neat in the opinion of 50% of the Word of the Week crew. Square Company was losing money, 
and Sakaguchi was racked with doubt. He felt he'd made a terrible mistake leaving university and that he wasn't cut out for video game design at all. Both Square and Sakaguchi were down to their last chances. Their final chances, if you will. Sakaguchi was a big fan of fantasy stories and games. He was especially fond of the British computer game series Ultima and of Dungeons and Dragons. He was also familiar with another Nintendo fantasy role-playing game called Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest had been immensely successful and a sequel was already being developed. It was a fantasy role-playing game series similar to computer games like Ultima, but streamlined and simplified for play with a home console controller. Dragon Quest's success had surprised many in Japan. No one realized that there might be a market for fantasy games. And so Square Company's management and Sakaguchi decided to use the company's remaining resources to create their own fantasy role-playing game. If it failed, Square would be out of business and Sakaguchi would return to university, make up for his lost time, and get his degree in engineering. That prospect left Sakaguchi quite depressed. And so he named the game Final Fantasy. Fantasy because it was, well, a fantasy game, and Final because it was literally the last chance for him to prove he hadn't made a terrible mess of his life. It was also Square's last chance to avoid bankruptcy. If you're not sure how the story goes, let's just say that Final Fantasy is now the 10th best-selling video game franchise of all time, having sold at least 150 million copies of its various main games, sequels, interquels, and spin-offs. And there have been a hell of a lot of games. We can't even count them all. Seriously. Oh, and now you know what to tell people who make fun of the fact that a franchise with the word FINAL in the name has so many entries. But we digress. Our point was about the travel progression in role-playing games. In the first Final Fantasy game, the four main characters, the Warriors of Light, start off limited to exploring one tiny island nation in one corner of the globe. On foot. After completing the first major quest in the game, the king orders the construction of a bridge to one of the world's main continents. After exploring for some time, the Light Warriors free a town from pirates and claim the ship as just spoils. The pirate ship allows them to sail to the southern and western continents. Eventually, they also gain a canoe that allows them to explore the interiors of various lands by following the rivers. And then, after a major quest, they managed to raise an ancient airship from its sandy grave beneath a remote desert. This flying vessel allows them to explore the world with impunity. Other games in the Final Fantasy franchise have built on the travel progression in the first game. Final Fantasy games have allowed you to travel mounted on the back of flightless ostriches, by steamship, airship, ancient magical spaceship, burrowing castle, submarine, automobile, armored personnel carrier, and even by Flying Military Academy. Yes, Flying Military Academy. And other games have offered similar travel progressions, if not as outlandish. There have been jet-powered time machines, mystical bird gods, balloons, horse-drawn carts. Heck, even the first Ultima game allowed you to travel by ship, hover car, and space shuttle. Yes, it was a fantasy series. No, we're not explaining that. We'll explain it some other time. Stop interrupting. Vehicles in role-playing games are about the freedom to explore, 
to push back the borders of the world. Even in D&D, many characters go from walking to riding mounts to booking passages on ships to flying carpets to teleportation to astral portals. And of course, human history has charted a very similar course. Well, minus the astral portals, mystical bird gods, and airborne military academies. Since our earliest days, we have been struggling against the natural barriers that keep us from crossing every distant horizon. And the vast, vast majority of that struggle has been spent conquering the water. And while sailing ships were the pinnacle of travel technology in the Middle Ages on which our fantasy worlds are based, they did not represent nearly as much freedom as we might think they do. Sailing was very limited and dangerous in those days. The massive galleons we tend to visualize our D&D characters plying the waves in, they didn't exist. And in the historical era of knights and castles, if you sailed out of sight of land for more than a couple of days, you might as well have sailed over the edge of the world, never to be seen again. The history of seafaring doesn't begin on the sea at all. And we can't even call it the history of sailing because even sails hadn't been discovered. In the beginning, around 5000 BCE or slightly before, the only thing people had was buoyancy. Now, buoyancy is a property that was first named in the 1500s and comes from the Spanish word boyar, which means to float. Of course, buoyancy was understood long before that. It was mathematically described by Archimedes of Syracuse around 250 BCE. And that's an interesting story in itself, though it might be at least partly apocryphal. It's a fun story and worth telling. From around 400 BCE to around 275 BCE, the Greek city-state of Syracuse had been in a state of internal and external conflict. Internally, various politicians were constantly struggling for the crown of Syracuse. Externally, Syracuse was at war with its archenemies, the Carthaginians. The army of Syracuse got fed up with not knowing who to take orders from day to day while they were getting their butts kicked by the Carthaginians, so they decided to appoint their own commander from their own ranks. The man's name was Hero. Hero was an extremely charismatic and talented leader, if a bit vain. And when he was raised to power, he exploited one of the oldest known truths of human society. If you act like you belong and just start shouting orders, no one will question you and everyone will listen. In short order, he managed to effectively seize control of the government of Syracuse while his political opponents were still sputtering and gasping. Then, he quickly organized his army and led his troops to a decisive victory against the Carthaginians that forced a settlement between the two rivals. When that was done, the people of Syracuse supported Hero so strongly that his political rivals couldn't unseat him if they wanted to. Now, Hero was vain and pompous, and so he demanded that the best goldsmith in the city make a fabulous crown of the purest gold for him, and he paid handsomely for it. But then, he started to suspect that the goldsmith might not have used pure gold, and that he might have been cheated. Hero couldn't prove it. But he knew his cousin, Archimedes, was an excellent engineer and mathematician, 
so he asked Archimedes to figure it out. The problem was this. Archimedes knew how much a given amount of pure gold should weigh. If you gave him a cube of gold that was, say, one foot by one foot by one foot, he could weigh it. If it was too light or too heavy, he'd know the gold had been mixed with something else. What he didn't know was how much metal was actually in the crown. A crown is not a cube. It's a complicated shape with all sorts of jutting, jagged edges. The problem was he didn't know how much space all the gold in the crown occupied, what its volume was. Not knowing how much gold was there, he couldn't figure out how much it should weigh. Here's where the story probably gets apocryphal. One night, while thinking about the problem, Archimedes decides to have a bath. And the bath was full to the brim. When he sat down in the bath, the water seeped over the edges and slopped out. And suddenly, he figured out how to solve the problem. Eureka! he shouted. Which in Greek means, I've made a discovery! He then jumped out of the bath and danced naked down the street, screaming Eureka! over and over. Probably. Maybe. Well, probably not. But it's a fun story. Anyway, what Archimedes realized was this. When he sat down in the bathtub, he displaced some of the water, because he took up some of the room in the tub. So however much water slopped out, that's how much space Archimedes took up. If he could catch the water and measure the amount, he'd have a measure for how much of Archimedes there was. And if he did the same with the crown, he would know how much gold was in the crown. Then he could weigh the crown and see if the weight matched the amount of pure gold. If not, the goldsmith had cheated his cousin. The ideas of displacement and buoyancy are actually very closely related. Buoyancy refers to an upward-pushing force that a fluid exerts on something you put in the fluid, like, say, a log or a rock. And Archimedes went on to mathematically describe this force and finally explain why some things float in water and others sink. It comes down to this. If you put something in the water, it will displace an equal amount of water, an equal volume. Now, if that volume of water is heavier than the thing you put in the water, gravity will force it under the thing. The heavier water will push up on the lighter object. On the other hand, if the object is heavier than the displaced water, gravity will pull it down, and the water will be forced above it. It will sink. And that is why boats float. The earliest boats, which were made for river travel, were made of wood. Wood is lighter than an equal amount of water. In point of fact, the earliest boats weren't boats at all. They were logs. Primitive people saw that logs floated in water. They didn't understand buoyancy and fluid dynamics. But they did discover that they could lay on the logs and paddle themselves where they wanted to go. Eventually, various folks discovered that you could lash several logs together and make a raft. Or you could hollow out a log and make a canoe. So you might say, the first bit of travel progression, the first advancement, was the discovery of buoyancy. Now, buoyancy is neat. It keeps you from sinking. But it would only get you as far as you could paddle. And then, around 3400 BCE, the next big progression happened. Life in Egypt was intimately tied to the Nile River. It provided the fertilizer and water that allowed the desert kingdom to feed itself. 
and it also connected the kingdom together. Now, the Egyptians lacked substantial amounts of wood, but they could make boats by lashing together papyrus reeds which grew in abundance along the Nile. But they had a problem. Going downriver was easy enough, the current did the work. But going upriver was impossible. Until they harnessed the power of the wind. What they discovered was that they could mount a square of papyrus sail on a mast in the middle of their ship, tie it down, and let the wind do the heavy lifting. The wind would fill the sail and push the ship upriver. But the Egyptians also contributed a second discovery to the history of sailing. Without someone paddling, they needed a way to steer their ships. And so they developed a long board that would trail into the water on one side of the ship. This became known as a steering oar. And the side that the steering board was mounted on became known as the steerboard side, though it wouldn't be called that for several thousand years. Unfortunately, the size of the Egyptian sailing ships was limited. Even when they started importing wood from their neighbors, you can only make a ship's hull so strong by lashing together reeds or boards. But their neighbors to the north, on the island of Crete, were about to contribute the next sailing innovation the keel. The keel is a sturdy single beam that runs along the bottom of the ship from the bow to the stern. And once you have a sturdy keel, you could mount curved beams called ribs on the keel. The keel and the ribs formed a sturdy skeleton around which you could build a ship. The Egyptians copied Minoan ribbed frame ships and added a second steering oar to the other side. Thus, in 1400 BCE, the pharaoh Ramses III had an impressive royal boat and an Egyptian navy under his command. Now, the Minoan and Egyptian ribbed-frame square-sailed vessels were good for getting around, but they were bulky and slow. And in naval combat, bulky and slow doesn't win many battles. Thus, the next innovations in sailing ship design came from the Greeks. Using the ribbed frame design, they were able to build larger, wider ships. Such ships could accommodate long ranks of rowers. The ships still had sails for moving from place to place, but for combat maneuvers. These galleys, that's what they were called, relied on the rowers for extra speed and maneuverability. In addition, the front of the ship was fitted with a ramming prow. And the greatest of these types of ships was the trireme, a word that means three rows. These massive ships could accommodate three long rows of oarsmen and were over 120 feet long. From that point on, ships improved in less substantial ways through the years, at least in Europe. China had developed its own ship along a similar evolutionary path called the Junk. Those rose to prominence in about the 2nd century CE. China's ships had some slight differences though. For one thing, rather than a steering oar, they used a vertical rudder mounted directly behind the boat and controlled by a lever called a tiller. And they used internal walls called bulkheads to increase the size and strength of their ships. In Europe, throughout the first millennium CE, similar incremental improvements were made to sailing ships, but the design remained essentially the same. Vikings in the 8th century strengthened the hulls of their longships and canars with overlapping planks, which was called clinker building. 
Their ships also tended to be slender and shallow, so oarsmen could bring their ships closer to land, into inlets, and even up rivers. Their durable ships were able to survive longer voyages, and they were able to leapfrog from Northern Europe to Iceland to Greenland to Northern North America. Around 1200 CE, European shipbuilders began adding wooden battlements called castles to the front and rear of their ships, from which archers could fire. At the same time, they stumbled upon the rudder idea and gave up on the steering oar. The result was the European warship known as the Cog. But all of these vessels had a substantial limitation. The sails they were using were square. That's why they are called square-rigged ships. The trouble is that the wind has to be coming from behind, or very nearly behind the ship, for it to move. If the wind wasn't blowing the way you wanted to go, a so-called fair wind, you weren't going there. And that made it very difficult to travel very far. A trip up or down the Nile River was easy enough. Crossing the Aegean Sea or the Mediterranean Sea in a trireme or crossing the Indian Ocean in a junk? Sure. Leapfrogging from landmass to landmass in a Viking Knarr to reach North America? Tough, but doable. But you were still a slave to seasonal prevailing winds. And crossing the open ocean was out of the question. No one is quite sure where the Latine sail originated. The lateen sail is a triangular sail mounted parallel to the ship's direction of travel and attached to a movable yard, a cross brace, that's mounted on an angle to the vertical mast. The advantage of the lateen, or Latin rig sail, is that it can catch the wind at many different angles, allowing the ship to sail at almost any direction relative to the wind. They can run with the wind at their back. They can sail at a reach with the wind coming from the side, or they can sail at a beat, heading at about 45 degrees to either side of the oncoming wind. Starting in around the 9th century CE, historical records feature the first drawings of latine-rigged ships in the Mediterranean. At around the same time, similarly rigged ships appeared in the Indian Ocean. And that gives us three possible origins for the triangular sail. Either it was invented in Europe and spread through the Middle East to Asia, or it was invented in the Far East and spread through the Middle East to Europe, or it was invented in the Middle East and spread both directions from there. While there is a lot of support for all three, some scholars suggest that the Middle East was the likely origin. They note that the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean both have prevailing seasonal winds that favor easy crossings with square sails. But the Red Sea and the waters around the Middle East were fraught with contrary winds. Regardless, between 1300 CE and 1400 CE, suddenly triangular sails were all the rage, and improved construction techniques led to the massive Carrack, the first ship to include both the square and the triangular sails needed for long voyages despite the whims of the wind. And it's the first ship that looks like what we picture a seagoing vessel to look like. The same techniques also led to the smaller, bulkier Caravelle. That was a slower trade vessel that relied entirely on triangular sails. These hardy vessels could sail the contrary winds of the southern hemisphere and begin exploring the coast of Africa. But there was still a problem. A problem 
that wouldn't be solved until the mid-1500s. And until it was, ships were still in grave danger if they strayed too far from land. One more vital piece of technology was missing from the repertoire of sailing. And it's the reason why the ships in Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest and Dungeons and Dragons would never and could never sail the open seas. But we'll talk about that next week. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.